Father, we give you this time now to, to worship isn't over, God. Let's look into your gospel, the good news, and God, drink deep of those truths that you have for us. We're so grateful, Lord. We just ask that you'd bless our brother, Pastor John, Lord God, with uh, your words that uh, don't return void, God. The living word that's sharper than any two-edged sword. Meet, meet us as you always do, God, right in our circumstance, Lord. Thank you for being our personal God. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Chris. Before you sit down, can you say hello to a couple people? All right, everybody, you may be seated if you're not already. Come on in. All right, so um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn to the book of Luke chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I just wanted to remind you of a few things uh, going on this week. Monday night, we have our women's ministry here at the church, and that's at 7 o'clock. Wednesday, we have our Through the Bible Bible study, and uh, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We have Tuesday night, back up a little bit from Wednesday, we have our Simplicity Ministry, uh, Recovery Ministry for Men, and um, Saturday... We have Chile with the chaplains. So that's this coming Saturday from 11 to 1. We're hosting the event for the Flower Mound PD. I encourage you all to come out. And uh, it's going to be a great event. The, uh, the police department did a little video on it. And it's really funny. Um, if you go to their uh, website or their social media, you can see it. But... Um, it's going to be a fun event, and basically it's just an opportunity for us to reach out to the community to show our support for the police department. So just encourage you to come out for that. It's uh, from 11 to 1 right here this coming Saturday. So that's it as far as announcements. Uh, we had a lot of the guys are just getting back from the men's retreat. So that went on this weekend, and it was uh, as the Lord really poured out His Spirit saw the fruit of that time and just really need to connect with uh, the guys. If you didn't go, uh, just pray and consider going next year. Uh, just hearing from, from the guys. We had a extended time last night after glow time and uh, a lot of guys stood up and shared what was going on in their lives and their testimonies and, you know, just... Sometimes you see people coming in and out of church, and you're like, wow, I had no idea. So uh, it's, it's good uh, for the guys to just be able to have a place where they can share what's going on in their life and have a brotherhood and people praying for them. Uh, I thought the, the theme was fantastic. It was about drifting away. And um, the theme was taken from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, where it says to give earnest heed lest you drift away and just the thought of drifting away the thought of just not being intentional about your walk with God will cause you to slowly drift away and end up in 
places where you're surprised you end up in those places. The design of the enemy is to render a believer ineffective, just to put a believer on the sidelines and put a believer into cruise control, apathy mode, to get someone where they just uh, just don't care, there's no fire, there's no fervency. And um, when Satan does that, then he's accomplished uh, a great purpose because God has called us to be ambassadors of Christ. He's called us to be filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with the things of God so that we can be a light into the world. Uh, Pastor James Marini spoke, uh, Calvary Chapel McKinney, and uh, did a great job. He spoke on 1 Samuel chapter 7 about um, Achan and the sin that was in the camp and the hidden sin. So he addressed that uh, really well and talked about the importance of dealing with hidden sin in our heart and not letting that uh, continue on. He talked about uh, being overconfident in our flesh and not trusting in the Lord and His work instead of trusting and being confident in our own work. And then um, I spoke on 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 17, and basically looked at these different areas that have a tendency to pull people away from God, areas, five different areas that we should really consider and focus our attention on. And the first one was just that, to take heed about the sin in our life. Take heed to the areas where we've gotten comfortable with sin or casual about sin, where sin has uh, sort of become a part of our life and we're not dealing with it. And sin has a tendency to be very sneaky and deceiving. And so we talked about that. We also talked about the uh, importance of taking heed to the Word of God. So the Word of God is a great indicator of our walk. Uh, when we start drifting away, we're less interested in the Word of God. We um, especially are not um, doing the Word of God. The Word of God becomes secondary instead of primary. And so we looked at the importance of drifting away, using the Word of God as sort of a benchmark to um, how we're doing in our walk with the Lord. We also looked at uh, taking heed to our Christian relationships, to uh, the relationships that we have with one another. When we start to drift away, uh, we start to drift away from relationships, drift away from the body of Christ. Um, John said in that, those scriptures, he said that he who says he walks in the light but hates his brother is a liar. So the inconsistency of having bitterness, unforgiveness in your heart and not dealing with that towards another person means you're walking in the darkness. And even though you may think that you're walking in the light, if you have that bitterness in your heart, you're walking in darkness and you'll be stumbling around in your Christian walk. Satan uses that tremendously to cause us to drift away. And then we looked at the importance of progressing in our life, moving forward. Uh, when we get stagnant or just comfortable or in a place where we're not pressing forward and continuing to seek the things above, continuing to uh, honor the opportunities given to us and to serve the Lord and press forward in our serving the Lord, we have a tendency to uh, drift away. And then the last thing 
was to take heed to our relationship with the world. We become worldly when we start drifting away, that the world's more important to us than things of God. And John says that you can't uh, love God and love the world at the same time. And so those are all things we sort of looked at, and we had just a time of the Lord being able to minister to our hearts through the time of praise and worship and prayer and I saw a lot of brokenness, a lot of restoration, a lot of building up. Uh, saw a lot of um, things that have been lingering in a, a person's life and those things being dealt with. So uh, I just thought I wanted to give you uh, just kind of a, I know a lot of you weren't able to go, especially you ladies. So I think that was a, an important theme in regards to drifting away because you know, that's something that is very unfortunate that happens. And uh, when you, you can sense that happening in somebody else's life, a lot of times in your own life, you're not as aware of it immediately. And it, it's just like, you know, watching someone drift down a current and about to go over Niagara, Niagara Falls. And you can, there's a pattern that you see it that over the years it, that is people, when we drift away, that there's this common kind of thing, a coldness to God and the things of God. And, and usually it's characterized by there's a change. They used to be one way and now all of a sudden they're not. They used to be doing these certain things and, and all, all of a sudden now they're not. Those, and you can just sense this gradual pull away. So, yeah, so thank you for your prayers and continue to pray. I know that ladies just had their retreat, the men had our retreat. And uh, one of the things that was asked in the little question and answer period was, well, how do we keep this going when we go back? And that's always the thing with the retreat. The magic, quote-unquote, of a retreat is that you're dedicating yourself to the things of God for an extended period of time, and you're able to get away from the things that cause so much busyness and preoccupation with other things. And that's it. And so to be able to do that here and to order our life correctly, I think, is really what allows us to continue in the power of the Lord and the strength of the Lord is to keep our eyes on the things above. Colossians 3.1 says we are to seek the things above and we are to keep our eyes on the things above and the importance of that. And so we're going to do that this morning. We're going to look at this particular scripture where Jesus is sort of pressing the need for the disciples now to go forward. They had been observers. And they had been, up to chapter 9, those who were being taught. They were being taught verbally, and they were being taught visibly by watching the things that Jesus was doing. And it was, it, was, it was a nice time because Jesus was doing all the stuff. And they just got to experience all the things that Jesus was doing. And as we got into you know, chapter 7 and 8, we start to see Jesus teaching them specific things that they would need to know teaching them about who he is, the supremacy of Christ, teaching about the unlimited power of Christ. They would need to know all these things because in chapter 9, they are being pushed out of the nest. They are 
being pushed out from those who see and watch what Jesus did to those who partake and are active in the things that Jesus did. They now receive the baton. And that's important for us. That's important for us to know that being a Christian is not watching other people use their gifts. Being a Christian is exercising ourselves in our own giftedness, particularly in the gospel. So Jesus is centering his message on getting the disciples to understand who he is, the fullness of who he is, his power over sickness, his power over death, his power over sin, his power over demons, his power over uh, nature. In other words, he's teaching them that he is all powerful, but not only that, he's willing to use his power. He's not just powerful and keeps it to himself, but he uses his power. As they're learning that, they're growing in understanding in their faith. They're growing in their understanding of him means that they also are growing in their, their faith, their own personal faith. So if you notice in chapter 9, verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 6, and then we'll pick it up a little bit more deeply in verse 7. So it says, Then he called his disciples, his 12 disciples, Together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And he said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither staff nor bag, nor bread nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And so they departed and they went through the towns preaching the gospel and the healing everywhere. So this is where we first begin to see that this message that is called the gospel Eulengelion is the Greek word. It's, it means the good news. That what they have been seeing, learning, and understanding about Jesus now has a, a purpose further than their own personal receiving of that message. And it's a stewardship that he's entrusting them with this message of salvation the one and only message of salvation that was spoken about all the way back from the very beginning of the Bible and was alluded to and hinted about and prophesied about and brought forward all the way to the, to the time of the disciples. And now they're given this stewardship of this most holy word of God, this message of salvation and one who would come into the world that was an eternally existing God who would become or come in the flesh, take on human flesh so that he can be a sacrifice for the sins of all those who believe. And you see in this part, he, he's sending them out. And he's sending them out. He's, he's telling them, don't take a lot of stuff because I want you to understand 
that when you go, you're going in the power that I give you and the authority that I give you, and you need to be dependent on that. And when we begin to get dependent on other things instead of the power of the Holy Spirit, then we will begin to delude the message. When we get to be dependent on gimmicks and flashy, worldly things to make our message in our mind more palatable, then all we're doing is deluding the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel in and of itself is the power of God to salvation. It contains the power. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians that he didn't come to Corinth with fancy words or using techniques of persuasion, but he came using the power of the Holy Spirit to convey the message. So there's nothing we can add to the message to make it better. There's nothing we can do to dress it up or to make it more relative or to add something that may, may make it be more digestible to a person. The gospel in and of itself contains all the power. We need to leave it alone. You might say, well, what is the gospel? Well, several places in the Bible speak of what the gospel is. First uh, Corinthians 15.4 is a great explanation where the Apostle Paul says, For I delivered to you first of all that which I received. So in other words, he didn't, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.4 didn't think that it would be appropriate to give out anything that he didn't receive. So what he gave out in regards to the gospel is simply what he was given. It wasn't anything of, its, of himself, anything of his own, own word, anything of his uh, own doing. He said, I received it and I gave it out. Isn't that what the disciples are doing here in, in our text in Luke chapter 7? Didn't Jesus called them to himself and then he gave them power and he gave them authority? So we, can, we only give out what we're given and we're all given the gospel. So the Apostle Paul says that I've been given this stewardship, this trust of the most powerful, most holy word that can be given to man. And because of that, there's a responsibility. Every believer has a responsibility to take care of the most precious thing that God has given us, and that, that's the gospel. So he says, here's the gospel. He said that Christ died for our sins according to Scripture. I like how he says that because... When he says according to scripture, he's saying he didn't, he, he didn't, this didn't originate with Paul. This is something that originated in eternity past and was given to us starting in the book of Genesis and all the way through the whole Bible. It is something that Jesus fulfilled when he came. It wasn't some brand new thing or some orchestrated thing. It was perfectly timed. And it was perfectly according to exactly what God has ordained and given to us in the Scripture. So he says that Christ died for our sins, according to Scripture. That he was buried, meaning that he really died, fully died. He was 
buried and put in a tomb bodily. And then it says, and then that he rose again on the third day. And he did that according to scripture. So that's the gospel. The resurrection then is such a resurrected bodily. His body was dead and then he had the power to raise himself from the dead and then to prove that that really happened it says that he was seen by Cephas and then by the 12 and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once so that's the evidence and the proof that there were eyewitnesses to the fact that Jesus bodily physically died and was bodily physically put in a tomb and as Jesus said I'll be in there for three days just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the whale I'll be there three days and three nights so he's already he himself is prophesying about his resurrection just before it happens and then it happens And then his disciples, they saw him dead, they saw him buried, and now they see him alive, bodily. They're hanging out with him. They're eating with him. They're touching him. And not only that, there are over 500 people, eyewitnesses, who saw him. And so then we have to ask ourselves the question. So if that's the gospel, why did God do that? Could could there have been another way? The reason he did that shifts the focus of the gospel and what Jesus did to mankind and who we are. And the Bible is very clear about the fact that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so that means every human being is a sinner. And the fact that we are born in sin means we are born separated from God. And the fact that Jesus came to do what he did means that we could not do anything about the condition of sinfulness that we're in. We can't be religious enough to make it go away. We can't do enough good things to make it go away. We needed something above our pay grade. We needed something more powerful. We needed a Savior. And that's why Jesus came. And so then we ask ourselves, well, is that one of many ways? It can't be so. It can't be so. Why is that? Because in order for our sin to be taken away, There had to be a perfect one, a sinless one, to be a sacrifice for our sins. So then we have to ask ourselves, well, then who would that be? Could that be someone else? Could there be another way to heaven? Absolutely not. And Jesus said that over and over again. I am the way, the truth, and the life No zero zip zilch man. No man. Zero. Can come to God without Jesus. He is the one mediator between 
God the Father, and us. This is the message that we've been entrusted in with. I, and it, it does surprise me in my thinking why God would entrust me with this message. It does surprise me that God would entrust mankind with this message. But He did. And so what does that mean? What does that suggest? And what kind of responsibility then do we have if He's entrusted to the church? When I say church, I mean every believer, this message. So we have a stewardship. We have a responsibility God has given us this message of salvation which we enjoy and now to proclaim to others. And so that's what we're looking at. Now, as we saw in this first section, he sends the disciples out. And we looked at last week, it's, it's interesting, he sends them out in a way where he wants them to be dependent on him because he's teaching them what it means to go and make disciples. He's teaching them how to bring people to that saving message. And the only way that can happen is that you and I depend on the power of God to share that message with other people. And so we ended off last week talking about what do we do now? So, and we talked about two things, praying and being ready. So I, I hope that's what you've been doing this week, praying for divine appointments, praying that God would lead you to those whom he wants you to share the gospel with. And then be ready for it, because a lot of times we're just not ready for it. A lot of times I do this myself, I walk away from some interaction, and I'm like, mm, mm, mm. why didn't I say anything? So be ready. Pray and be ready. Now, it's, in, now it's interesting. We go from that, and this is where we're going to be, begin this morning. Whenever we take this seriously, the responsibility that God has given us to be ambassadors, to be those who reconcile people to God through this message, when we're praying and depending on God, when we're seeing that, that this, is, this is the whole thing for the believer, this is what Paul was willing to suffer so much, this is what the church is built on, the martyrs of the church, that those would go out and be willing to die for this message because it's the message of eternal life. There's conflict involved in that. And I think that's where, where many of us may get discouraged because we, we may hear a message like this or we may read the word in a section, the Bible in a section like this and, and we realize the, the burden that we should have to share the gospel with people and we realize sometimes it, it causes conflict. This message causes conflict. So look at verse 7. We'll see the conflict just sort of raise its ugly head. As it, the disciples are sent out, it says, just sort of like, almost like a side note while all this is going on, it says, now Herod the Tetrarch, 
heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed. So this is uh, Herod. This is Herod Antipas, which is the son of Herod the Great. And he was in charge of or ruling over the area around the Sea of Galilee, the Galilee region where Jesus was doing a lot of his ministry. He was ruling under the Roman Empire. And he, was, he would have been familiar with his father who killed all the Jewish babies under two because Jesus came and he was concerned about this Jesus that came, and his idea was just to get rid of all the young Jewish boys so he didn't have to deal with Jesus, not understanding fully who Jesus was. So this is his son. This is the same son that beheaded John the Baptist because John the Baptist called him out on his sin. He was responsible for beheading what Jesus would say was, to that time, the greatest man that's ever lived. And he was a great prophet, the greatest prophet. He was the prophet that bridged the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. He prepared the way. And because Herod the Tetrarch didn't like something that John the Baptist said, he cut off his head. Of course, he was peer pressured into that. But when you think about that, how do you think that's going to go? Do you think you can do something like that and just go on your merry way and not have any repercussions of, of, that, of that sin. And of course, that was very egregious. But now we see he's feeling threatened because he's hearing about the things that Jesus is doing. He can't obliterate his conscience. We can't get rid of our conscience. That's why so many people drink or take drugs or try to numb themselves because we do have a conscience. And he had a conscience. And what he thought, oh, okay, I'll just behead John the Baptist and I'll go on and I'll be inappropriately married to my brother's wife and everything will be fine. And he's probably thinking because he had so much power it made him feel secure because he could do what, in, in a sense, he could do whatever he wanted with limitations, but he had so much power. That power made him feel invincible. But we see this conscience coming up. And the conscience is coming up because simply of hearing what Jesus is doing. Just uh, the name of Jesus has a tendency to evoke the demons. The name above all names. As he's hearing, he's feeling threatened. He was perplexed, it says. And then the reason given is because some, it was said by some, that John had risen from the dead. So you can see why he's feeling threatened. He's thinking, could this be Jesus? Or, I'm sorry, could this Jesus be John the Baptist? He's alive now? You could see how he would be feeling pretty insecure at this point. 
And Matthew, Matthew's account of this same story tells us that he said, John the Baptist, he is risen from the dead and therefore these powers are at work. So he's feeling threatened. Now there's all this speculation. And this is interesting because this is what it's like when we don't have the truth. We just start to speculate on things. Why do we do that? Because there's no truth. When there's no truth, all we have is speculation, opinion, what everybody may think. What's the consensus? But Herod has a big problem brewing because he's thinking, all my power I have, if John the Baptist is raised from the dead, that's maybe a bigger power than I have. But you'll notice the peanut gallery, the speculation crowd, saying, it says, it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, John the Baptist. And then some were saying it was Elijah that had appeared. Well, this might be Elijah. And so it sounds like they have some familiarity with the scripture because in Malachi 4, 5, it talks about Elijah being a forerunner and coming before the Messiah. And then it says, and then others, they were speculating that one of the old prophets has risen again. So why all this speculation? It's because they were not familiar with Jesus. They didn't know Jesus. And the scriptures had foretold of Jesus, but they didn't know and when we don't know and when we don't put Jesus in the center of our understanding, it lends itself to all sort of speculation. And this speculation, we see it turns into fear. Isn't that what happens? When we feel threatened or our conscience is kind of bothered by the truth, and then we start to speculate, which means we try to figure things out. And when we try to figure things out without the truth, that leads to great fear. This is how Satan often operates. But in this case, it was the guilty conscience of Herod that was awakened. So Herod, in verse 9, he says, John I have beheaded, but who is this? of whom I hear such things, and so he sought to see him. I, I got to see this guy. He was no doubt hoping that something would be resolved about his fear by seeing Jesus, by understanding who he was. But in reality, for him to truly know who Jesus was, would have caused more fear in him. And hopefully it would have caused him and that fear to bow his knees before Jesus and surrender his life to him. But that did not happen. Because we see later in the story that it was this Herod, when Pilate was putting Jesus on trial, he sent Jesus to Herod. And Jesus wouldn't answer Herod's questions 
And it says, Herod mocked Jesus. So his inability to bow his knees to Jesus is now costing him eternally in hell. But watch what happens. The story shifts. The spotlight moves back to the apostles in verse 10. So the apostles, when they return, return from what? Return from their missionary journey, being sent out. When they came back, they told him, Jesus, all that they had done. So they, they were excited and they're telling Jesus. It was amazing. The demons were afraid of us and the sick, they're all getting healed and we are preaching this message. They're getting to experience the power of God working through them. And you can just sense how in all they were and how amazed they were that they were now getting the opportunity to do what they saw Jesus doing. And Jesus, the way he handled this, it says, then he took them and he went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. And as he's doing this, so we understand as they're reporting, Jesus understands, hey, they need some rest. Let's go away to a quiet place when one is out in the battlefield ministering and going in the power of God. There are, there, there's the need to get aside to be with Jesus and to rest, and that's very important for the servant of God. But it's not more important than the needs that are around. So we see a divine intervention. We see them like, oh, great, we're going to go, we're going to chillax, we're going to talk to Jesus, we're going to be away from everybody, but something happened in verse 11 when the multitudes knew it. What does that mean? There's a lot of people following Jesus around the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Thousands, over 10,000 People, anywhere from 10 to 20,000. So they're trying to find Jesus. They're hearing all the things that he's doing and they're trying to get to him. And they're following him. And it says, What? What does that say? He what? He received them. What about my rest? Well, right now there's something more important. So sometimes divine appointments. Right? You're praying for those, aren't you? Are you praying for divine appointments? You don't have to raise your hands. But you know what's going to happen a lot of times for divine appointment? It's going to be inconvenient. You're going to have to miss the first quarter of the cowboy game, maybe. Maybe the whole game. It's inconvenient. And I think... Sometimes we miss opportunities because we don't want to be inconvenienced. Have you ever got knock at the door and you look out your ring and there's two guys in suits and says, Elder, and you're like, shh. 
mute the TV, mute the TV. Shh. Are they gone yet? Are they gone? Hey, that was a divine appointment. There was an opportunity. So we have to be willing to be inconvenienced. And a lot of times it's going to be when we don't want to do it. But you guys are praying and you're ready. Right? Because I'm telling you it's going to happen. You're praying and you're going to have these divine appointments. Don't miss them. Be willing to be inconvenienced. And so Jesus, he received them, it says, the multitudes, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. So that's his message. He's preaching to them about the kingdom of God. Kingdom of God. That's primarily what Jesus came to do. It wasn't the miracles. The miracles were to substantiate the message. But it was the message, the preaching of the message. And it says, and he healed those who had need of healing. Verse 12. Now when the day began to wear away, it got late. The twelve, those who just went on that missionary journey and were empowered by God to see great miracles, they came to Jesus and they said, Send the multitude away. Send all those people away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions for we are in a deserted place. So the disciples, their way of thinking at this point was not that bad actually. A lot of times they get a bad rap because we say the disciples said just send them away but the reason they said that is because if they didn't get home there wasn't places to eat it wasn't like in our society and culture where you can find food in convenience stores and rotating hot dogs at 7-eleven at all hours of the day so they were actually Concern, and they said, Hey, Jesus. So, so they were concerned. It wasn't harsh. But what it was was short sighted. Their faith is still developing, but they didn't realize. They're looking at, at, at things in a very practical way, not considering the fact that Jesus didn't tell them to go away. So he must have something. And that's where we need to be careful of. of, of exerting our own thoughts and desires upon the will of God. Just kind of go with what Jesus is doing. That's what I try to do. Just try to go with what Jesus is doing and just reserve your own opinion. Just try to step where Jesus is stepping. Try to move in the way Jesus is moving. But they're still kind of feeling like, well, maybe Jesus doesn't know. So we better tell him. Maybe he's really occupied with ministering, and if, if, if they don't get home, they're all going to be really hungry, and some of them might faint. So their faith was limited. So in, in regards to us praying and being ready, 
all we have to do is to know that whatever God brings our way, that He will make the provision for us. We don't need to overthink it. We don't need to think about saying it exactly right and using the right terms and answering the right questions. We don't need to do that. We need to know that if Jesus is bringing it about, then he will bring it to its completion as well. But they're short-sighted, lacking in faith, and they're saying, we need to send them home. And here it is. This is for us, you and me. Here's what Jesus says. You give them something to eat. That is the challenge to us today. Will you pray that God would command you to do something that in and of yourself you can never do on your own. You give them something to eat. They're saying, how can we feed all these people? It's better they go home. And Jesus, if Jesus is telling you and commanding you to do something, his commandment is his enablement. And so often we are so stuck on thinking in narrow parameters about how God works. And because of that, we never experience the power of God working in the situations that he called us to. Does that make sense? You give them something to eat. That's the challenge. Will you and I, will we pray that God would ask us to do something or command us to do something that is completely out of our ability to do? Will you ask him to do that? Isn't that what Peter did when they were on the water and the storms were raging and Jesus was walking on the sea? Peter just didn't start walking on the sea. He said, Jesus, command me to walk on the sea because he knew if if Jesus commanded it, it's possible. Will you ask Jesus to command you to do something that you cannot do in and of yourself? Will you do that? That's the challenge. What was their response to the challenge? They said, well, we don't have more than five loaves and two fish unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men So that's where we think there's probably at least 10,000 total people, maybe up to 20,000. Do you see what happened there? Jesus said, you give them something to eat. If Jesus says that to us, that should end it. Jesus says, go do something. Go pray for that person. Go share the gospel with that person. Go to Uganda, go to Haiti, go to San Antonio and minister to those people there. Go to your neighbor. If he says that, that you don't have to ask any more questions and you don't have to start thinking. Here's what happens. If I do that, X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Don't do that. Don't put terms and conditions 
on what God is asking you to do. They're being very practical and not exercising faith. They were right. They were correct. And someone, when Jesus said that, had gone through the crowd to see what provisions they have. And their way of handling the commandment of God was to do it in a human, fleshly, practical way. And do you know, we can't accomplish the things that God has called us to do in our flesh, but only by the Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6, Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So their little faith, practical ways to handle, then handle this situation needs to be taught to them by Jesus. So Jesus demonstrates. So Jesus said to his disciples, make them sit down in groups of 50. And they did so. And made them all sit down. And Jesus took the five loaves and the two fish and he looked up to heaven. He's acknowledging that this is going to come from above. This is something that's going to happen that it's not going to be earthly, but it's going to be heavenly. And he blessed and he broke them and he gave to the disciples. Isn't that interesting? So Jesus does this miracle And he gives to the disciples to pass out because now he's teaching them. And he said, and he set before the multitudes, and they all ate and were filled, and 12 baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And so this miracle is in all. All four of the Gospels, the only miracle other than the resurrection that is in all four of the Gospels. And here's the significance. In John's account, in John chapter 6, he tells us that after this event, he went back to his hometown Capernaum, or his headquarters, I should say, and the multitudes followed him there. And Jesus said to them, you're all following me because... You're all filled with bread. So they wanted Jesus to keep doing these miracles and give them the bread that actually perishes. And this is where Jesus said this. John 6, 27. He says, Do not labor or work for food that perishes but for the food that endures to everlasting life. My Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He, it's a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then Jesus says, I am He who comes down And he who eats of me shall never hunger 
again. He who believes in me shall never thirst again. The whole story is about Jesus being the bread of life and the spiritual bread that he offers to all who come to him. And he's teaching this to his disciples and he's teaching this to us today so that we understand like the vast multitudes of people, they are hungry for the real bread, Jesus Christ. We are all hungering for Jesus, whether we know it or not. As Jesus fed the multitudes, he will feed also all who come to him, but he will feed them from the bread of heaven, which is eternal life and the only bread that truly satisfies the soul. Jesus is that bread. Jesus is that life. And now, as he gave the multiplied bread to the masses, he gives you and I the message about the bread of life to also share with the masses. And what happens when we give the bread of life out? Those who receive it will never hunger and never thirst again because only Jesus can satisfy. So will you pray? And will you be ready? Will you pray that God would ask you to do something beyond yourself to feed the masses? Will you, will you pray for divine appointments? Will you be a good steward of the message of eternal life that God has given us? Let's pray. And let's be serious about this mission field. It's right outside there. The fields are white and ready for the harvest, but the laborers are few. May we enter in to the labor of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for this life-changing word. I thank you, and in times like this, I always remember who shared the gospel with me. I thank you for Brian Peterson sharing the gospel with me. I pray that we would all be those who someone would thank because we shared the gospel with them. And Lord, I want to I want to just I want to pray now thinking about the potential the possibility that there may be someone here or listening that may even be thinking because they're here they're good or maybe even because they believe about you they're good but like 
bread, we have to take it in. And Lord, maybe there's someone here who is not born again, whose sins have not been washed away, who even now just would still be under the weight and the penalty of their sin. And now is an opportunity to change all that. And I just want to take this time to ask you to make sure before God that you are saved and that your sins are truly forgiven. To take an honest, honest moment before God right now if you're not sure and say, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. I give my life to you in surrender. That's how we get saved. We receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We trust in the work that he has done on the cross to wash away our sins. Settle that issue today. Make sure that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And I promise you, it will be the best decision that you will eternally ever make. But make that decision. Nobody can make it for you. You have to make it. And so consider that as we finish this morning with worshiping the Lord. Thank you, Lord. Work in the hearts of the people here to bring those to salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. And our prayer team is going to be up front. If anybody would like prayer this morning about anything, as we sing this last song, just come on up. And uh, they would love to pray with you. Chris, take it away, brother.